Good to see y'all this morning. Yeah. It's great to have y'all on the first day of December. Can you believe it? Uh, and I just want to say, I forgot to say this in the first service, uh, we have someone here today who uh, has been with us 10 years today, and that is Alan Armstrong. Alan has been on staff 10 years. We're, we're going to have a big celebration for, for he and Candace in January, uh, but not today. So y'all be, y'all be thinking about the, the first Sunday in January, January 5th, um, and we're going to take up a love offering for them, and, and we're going we're gonna to do it upright, but... Uh, just wanted to say the official day today, and in two weeks, we're bringing in someone uh, to stand before you for you to approve as our new youth minister, and so that's entirely appropriate since it was 10 years ago that Alan came as our youth minister, and, and so uh, we're excited about what's happened in our, ch- in our church's past and what is coming in our church's future, so keep that in mind. Uh, y'all turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 1, 1 through 5, we start a a series today on the prologue to the Gospel of John uh, that talks about who is Jesus, and it says things about Jesus that aren't commonly known, even within the church. And I'm reminded of the little boy in a Sunday school class, the teacher was trying to draw the kids out, you know, wanted the kids to get involved in the lesson, wanted them to participate, and so she said, okay, boys and girls, I'm thinking of something that's small and furry and lives in a tree and eats nuts. Can anybody guess what I'm thinking of? And the little boy raised his hand and he said, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) So I think about that when I read the first part of John, because John starts off unlike any of the rest of the Gospels. Remember, the Gospels in the Bible, there's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They tell the story of the life of Jesus, and they tell the story of what He did for us, what His impact on our world is today, and how we can know God differently because of Him. But John's gospel starts off differently. It doesn't start off with the Christmas story as we know it. It doesn't even start off with His ministry or or the ministry of John the Baptist like the book of Mark does. But instead, it starts with this prologue, and it uses language that doesn't sound familiar to us from the rest of the Bible. It's using terms that we don't know, and if you were reading this for the first time, you might think, I don't know what John's talking about, but because it's a gospel, because we know it's about Jesus, we read this and we think, okay, John's obviously talking about Jesus, even though it doesn't sound like it to us. The words that he uses here are key, because this prologue of the gospel of John may be one of the more beautiful parts of the whole Bible. In fact, I think of it as the first Christmas carol, because it's talking about the coming of Christ into the world in terms that uh, are just exquisite. But what it really comes down to is it tells us who Jesus is. And I think, who is Jesus is the most important question that has ever been asked and something that every person needs to wrestle with. And if you're not a believer today, you might hear that and say, well, okay, you have to say that because that's the party line. But I submit to you That even if you don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, even if you don't believe that Jesus was anything more than an ordinary person, think about this one thing, that Jesus is the most impactful, uh, influential person who has ever lived on earth. And I say that because, if nothing else, what year is it? It's 2019, right? What does 2019 mean? 2019 years approximately since Jesus came into the world. Can anybody else say that history is divided into everything that happened before they were born and everything that happened after they were born? Jesus, every time we say the name of the year, we remember the impact He had on this world. And even beyond that, history uh, shows that 
out of the movement Jesus started came modern scientific thinking, came our notions of education, human rights, government, the meaning of life, and certainly what it means to know and serve and believe in God. So if someone who lived 2,000 years ago has that kind of a lasting impact on our lives today, doesn't it make sense that we would try to figure out who was this man? Who was he really? And what better time than at the Christmas season? So let's read John chapter 1, and we'll just, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 5 today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now again, we know that John is talking about Jesus, and it's confirmed when we get to verse 14, which we'll look at the Sunday before Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But why does he use the terms that he does, and what is he saying about Jesus in these verses? Three things, three very important things that the world does not recognize, and that even many in the church don't seem to understand. So you get ready? Three things. Number one, he is the eternal Word. Number one, he is the eternal Word. So when John begins by saying he is the Word, or the, in the beginning was the Word, why does he use that term Word? See, to a Jew like John, the Word of God was significant. The Word of Jeff is nothing big, right? I speak, and you can choose whether or not to believe me, choose whether or not to do what I say. I don't snap my fingers and people just come running and do what I say. But, G, but God, God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, when He speaks, things happen. When God speaks, the world changes. In fact, when God spoke for the first time, the world came into existence. Think about that. God's Word is the most powerful force on earth. So to a Jew like John, calling Jesus the Word meant He was the projection of God's image, God's power, God's agenda onto the earth. This was God coming into the world to make change, to make things different. But to Greeks, and by the way, if you weren't Jewish in that world, you pretty much thought like a Greek because Greco-Roman thought covered the earth the same way American culture and American thought sort of covers the earth today, but even in a more significant way. And in Greek and Roman thought, what mattered most was philosophy. That's hard for us to understand because today the only people who sit around discussing philosophy are grad students, right? But in Greco-Roman culture, everyone was either a Stoic or an Epicurean. They were a disciple of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. And everyone wanted to talk about, well, what is life all about? What do you think is truth? And so, to the Greeks, that word word was the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S. And that word logos meant the meaning of life. It meant the essence of everything coming together. And so they would sit and discuss, what is the logos? Why are we here? Why does this world exist? By the time John was born, by the time John was writing this down, Greek philosophy had kind of uh, gelled into two different schools, Stoicism and Epicureanism. And both schools had decided, you know, no one can really know the logos. We can do our best and we can make guesses, but no one can really know it. So when a Greek-speaking person or a Greek-cultured person reads the prologue to John in the first century, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, they were thinking to themselves, okay, John's about to finally tell me what the meaning of life is. And what John is telling them is, the meaning of life is Jesus. The reason we're here is God came in the flesh to dwell among us, and that's what life is all about, is getting to know 
him. And in fact, in verse 1, he's saying three incredibly audacious things. He's saying, first of all, that Jesus, the Word, is eternal. Remember, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. You know any other book of the Bible that starts with the words, in the beginning? Anybody guess? Genesis. Y'all are good. You've read this book, haven't you? Yeah, Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning. But it says, in the beginning, and then it goes on forward in history and tells the story of creation. But John does it differently. He says, in the beginning, and then goes backwards. He goes back into prehistory, pre-creation, the vast expanses of infinity. And he says, the Word existed back then. Jesus existed back then. You know what that means is, Jesus is the only flesh and blood thing in the whole universe, in all of history, that wasn't created. Jesus has always been. Jesus has always existed. He is eternal. Not only that, but He is distinct from the Father. It says the Word was with God. He has His own personality, His own identity, separate from the Father, and yet the Word was God. That means, number three, He is God. He is separate from the Father, and yet He is God. Now, how can that be? How can it be that Jesus is fully God, and there is only one God, and yet God is Father and Son, and later we find out Holy Spirit as well? I don't know. Ask your mother. I don't know. I, I, I don't understand this. Do you think we can grasp this? This is higher than we can a- apprehend, than we can wrap our minds around. Several years ago, in 2017, in September, uh, the ministers and I were on our annual staff retreat, and we were in a, a rent house on the banks of the Guadalupe River outside of New Braunfels. And we were, it's the middle of a hot September day, and I'm standing at the whiteboard with my little marker, and and everybody else is sitting on their folding chairs with their notebooks in their laps, and we're planning ministry for the coming year. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, which was really surprising because no one knew where we were. And so we're thinking, who is this? And so I go and I open the door, and there stand two young men who identify themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses. And they say, we'd like to come in and talk to you about the Bible. And I said, oh, that's great. I'm, I'm Jeff Berger. I'm the senior pastor of First Baptist Conroe. And, and these are all the rest of the ministers in our church. And we're just sitting here playing in ministry. But we would love to talk to you about the Bible. And they suddenly re- decided they had somewhere else they needed to be. So we missed out on that Bible study. But one of the things that why I mentioned that is one of the things that separates Jehovah's Witnesses from other Christ, from Orthodox Christianity, let me put it that way, is that they don't accept John 1.1. They do not believe that Jesus is eternal. They think He was a created being. They don't think that He's divine. They certainly think that He's higher than you and me, but he's, He is not equal to the Father. He is not one with the Father. Now, why do they believe this? Well, because it's hard. Because it doesn't make sense. We want God to make sense. We want God to fit into a nice, neat little box where we can easily dis- define and describe Him. We want God to be like everybody else. But God's not like everybody else. God is hard to understand because He's God. And if you think, well, I I just can't accept that Jesus can be fully human and fully divine. How can that possibly be? How can Jesus, when He was praying to the Father, be praying to Himself? That doesn't make sense. How can Jesus and the Son and the Father be one? How can they be one God and yet separate persons? I don't understand. Well, that's okay. That doesn't make it not true. Jesus is God and we're not. He is the eternal Word. And if you think it's hard for you to accept that, think about how hard it was for John to accept. Because John spent every day of his life for at least three years 
living right next to Jesus, camping out with him, eating, walking with him. He saw him at the best moments and the worst moments. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how when you really get to know somebody, you see their flaws? You know, like maybe you got this guy who's a friend, maybe a member of the church, and you, you know him from afar. Yeah, that's a good guy. And then they hire you, and you go to work for them, and you find out, no, he's not such a good guy after all. Or, or you've got this friend, and you think, hey, we should room together. We'd make great roomies. We get along great. And then you move in together in an apartment, and you're like, she's disgusting. I can't live with her. John lived with Jesus. If, if Jesus had warts at all, John would have known them. And on top of that, John was a Jew, and and in Jewish religion, in Judaism, in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, their belief system did not include the the thought that God would become a man. Now, I know it's in the Old Testament, but nobody at the time John was alive recognized those verses for what they were. They They didn't see those things in the Scriptures until after Jesus came. Greek and Roman mythology had the idea of God's becoming down and becoming men, mainly for the for the purpose of doing bad things. Eastern religion has the idea of the, meta, of the avatar who, who is a personification of a God, but only Christianity presents a God who comes in flesh. John had never thought of something like that, who comes in flesh as a baby to save the world. So John had to overcome all those hurdles, and yet late in life, in spite of all the reasons he would have had to doubt, he is able to say, Jesus, the Word is the eternal Word. Jesus is one with the Father. That's who we pray to. That's who we celebrate at Christmas time. But number two, not only is He the eternal Word, He is the Creator of everything. Isn't it interesting that when God became a human, He came into this world and was a carpenter? Don't you love that? Since He's the Creator of all things. Because that's what verse 3 says. Verse 3 is kind of redundant, isn't it? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John says it twice. He wants us to understand. And then Paul comes along uh, later on and writes Colossians 1, 16-17, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's astonishing to think that this Nazarene carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago is the key to all creation, that He made all things that exist. Now, you think about that. There's, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Number one, think about the power that it takes to create. Now, we live in awe of different kinds of power. We, we look at someone who can, who, can, who can direct a movie or can uh, put together, uh, who can design a great work of art, or an athlete who can dribble down a basketball court, take off from the free throw line and slam dunk a basketball. Wow, look at that power. We admire someone who starts a company and builds it into a billion-dollar empire and buys and sells smaller companies and and has all this economic power over others. The the lives and the jobs of millions of people reside or or, are in the palm of that person's hands. We think about someone who wins an election and runs the country for four to eight years, and we think, man, the most powerful person on earth. And Jesus laughs at that. All those kinds of power are, are child's play compared to someone who could just speak and a whole universe comes into being, who can design you and me. And yet, He gave up that power. In the words of Philippians 2, He stripped Himself of that power, emptied Himself, and became a servant. Not just a servant, but a baby. Think about it. There's all these stories in fiction of aliens coming down to earth, right? And they walk around and we're just dazzled at their appearance. 
They're so much more advanced than us. But when God came down, what did He take the form of? The very first form that our God took when He came into this world was that of an unborn child floating in the womb of a teenager for 40 weeks. Can you believe that? I mean, I know we think about, I'd love to go back and relive this or that. I don't know anybody who says, yeah, I'd love to be a fetus again. That's helpless. And then to be born, God Almighty was born as an infant who couldn't see more than six inches from his face, who couldn't articulate words, who couldn't really control the movements of his hands, who was entirely dependent on the care of two first-time parents. And he did that for us. He sacrificed his power for us. But not only that, think about the fact that he made you. This Jesus who we sing to, who we pray to, who we worship, who we celebrate at Christmas time, there was a time when you did not yet exist and he purposed you. Psalm 139 says that he crafted you, he knitted you together in your mother's wombs. It doesn't mean he literally took a pair of knitting needles inside your mother's stomach. What that means is there was great care and craftsmanship that went into making you just as you are. There was intentionality there. You may look in the mirror and wish that you were taller or shorter or thinner or plumper or stronger or faster or smarter. God says, I made you the way I want you. You are who I made you for a purpose. God is the one. Jesus is the one who decided whether you'd have blue eyes or brown or, or, or green or some combination, some, something in between. He's the one who decided if you'd have that hard-charging type A personality or you'd be more laid back. He's the one who decided whether you'd be introverted or extroverted, whether you'd be good at math and science or good at designing things or good at analyzing things or good at building things or good at fixing things or good at something else. But the purpose of what he did was He created you for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that. You are His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works that He planned beforehand for you to do. Which means, before you were ever born, God knew the people you would interact with. He knew the problems those people would have. He knew the problems in this world that you would encounter. And He said, I'm going to custom design you to meet those problems. To be the solution to some of those issues. To to help some of these people in ways no one else can. You are significant. And even beyond what you do, He created you for Himself. He made you in His image, designed so that you are most happy, you are most satisfied when you are in Him, in communion with Him. He made you for a relationship with Him, and that's how much you mean to Him. He is the eternal Word. He is the creator of everything, including us. And finally, He is the light of the world. So you may not know this story, but back in December of 1952 in the city of London, England, that city experienced some of the worst cold that they've ever experienced in their history. December 1952, records were set. And as the city got colder and colder, the, the citizens of London began heaping more and more coal onto their fires to keep themselves warm. And of course, the billowing black smoke that came billowing out of their chimneys mixed with the famous London fog and created this, this dark mass of smog that just enveloped the entire city. And if you had re uh, respiratory issues or if you were elderly or if you were very young, it was dangerous. It was critical. You needed to get to a doctor. And in fact, healthy young adults were having trouble breathing. But the problem was 
the visibility was so low because of this toxic smog that people had abandoned their cars in the streets so ambulances couldn't get around. Public transportation was shut down. You had to walk. You had to walk all the way to the hospital. And walking was difficult because visibility was so bad, you literally couldn't see your toes if you were standing up. And so you had to shuffle along, hoping you didn't bump into something, hoping you didn't fall into a hole or bump into a parked car or run into another person. And experts who look back on it estimate that as many as 12,000 Londoners died during the great smog of 1952. And what made it even worse is because it kept getting colder and colder because the sun was blotted out by the smog, the citizens of London kept putting more coal on their fires. They kept heaping more coal onto those fires and making things even worse. And isn't that a great metaphor for our world? Because God created a perfect world. In Genesis 1, it says every time He created something new, He said, it is good. And when the whole thing was complete, He looked at it and said, behold, it is very good. And then we came along and we polluted His world. Not just literally, although we've done that, but I mean spiritually. I mean, we brought sin into the world. We brought death. We brought suffering. We brought warfare. We brought hatred. We brought disease and famine. And every time that we choose to do things our way, Every time that you and I decide, I want to find happiness and contentment and, and identity and purpose my own way, on my terms, without God, we're heaping more coal on the fire. We think we're making things better. We think we're taking a step to, to make our lives happier, and yet what we're doing, because we're not advancing toward Him, we're making things even darker. We're making it even harder for us to get to God. We're making it even harder for others to see Him. And folks, if... I'm generally a, an optimist by nature, and yet I can look at our country and say, we are in, in the spiritually darkest time in our nation's history right now. It has never been harder for ordinary men and women who live in this country to see that there is a God who loves us, who sent His Son to die for us. There is great darkness here. And yet 2,000 years ago, into that darkness stepped Jesus, the Son of God, he was, in the words of verse 4, He was the life that was the light of men. In verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But that baby that was born the first Christmas grew up, and in John 8, 12, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's the one who cuts through the fog. He's the one who shows us what the world is really like who we really are and who He really is and what life is all about. He's the one who, once we get to Him, we, we're finally able to breathe clearly. And we have life in us again. And we can see. We can see our fellow human beings. Before, we just saw them as objects. We just saw them as, as people to overcome, as obstacles to run into or jump over. But now we see brothers and sisters that we're called upon to love. When His light comes into our life, we see ourselves through the eyes of God. We see all the darkness, but we see the love as well. We see the potential of what God can do in our lives. But best of all, we see where we're going. One of the great things about following Jesus is the world can take anything away from you except your future. Because when you follow Jesus, you know where your life is headed. You're headed to a life where you don't really die. Death is just a graduation. It's just a promotion where you inherit a new body. These bodies we walk in now, they have expiration dates. You realize that, right? I mean, the manufacturer 
we'll recall them eventually. But the bodies we inherit when Christ returns are eternal. Never age, never get sick, never get hurt, never die, never visit a nursing home again, never go to a hospital again, never go to a funeral again. And any tears we weep will be tears of joy. Imagine seeing the people that have gone on ahead of us. This past week, Thanksgiving was a great time and I loved it. And yet there was a part of me that was sad because I kept thinking about the people who weren't there who had been there in the past, and someday we'll see them again, and we'll celebrate, we'll rejoice with them. But best of all, we'll be in the presence of the one who gave us life in the first place. Right now, we just see him as though through a glass darkly. We see him like through a thick coat of smog, but someday face to face, and we'll be captivated by him. And that's coming, and there's nothing that can stop it. And the world can't take it away. That is our light Notice in verse 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That word shines is present tense. It doesn't say the light shined. It's shining right now. It's shining through us. We're the ones that reflect that light into the world so everyone can see this is where the light is. When Jesus, in John chapter 8, called Himself the light of the world, the people listening were offended. They said, how could this man, this uneducated carpenter from Galilee, how could he say such things about himself? So, to explain himself in verse 28 of chapter 8, he said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do only, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And they looked around and were like, who's the Son of Man? Well, that was, that's what Jesus called himself. That was his favorite self-referential term. What did he mean when he said, when you've lifted me up, then you'll understand. Then you'll know. Then you'll know I'm the light of the world. Well, later on in John chapter 12, he's talking about that again. He's talking about lifting up the Son of Man. But this time in John 12, 33, John adds this little note. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was talking about the cross. He was telling his skeptics, you don't believe I'm the light of the world now, but when I die, you'll see. And it wasn't so very long. Before the people who hated and and opposed Jesus finally got what they've been wanting all along, and they took him to the top of a hill and they nailed him to a wooden cross, and they raised up that cross beam and they stacked it on a pole so that he hung there for six hours until he died. And they thought, we've done it. But they had no idea what in the world they had unleashed. Because on that day, the light of the world burst forth into this world. And men and women started following that light, and it changed everything. It changed history. What that means is, if right now you say to me, Jeff, I identify with those people in London. I'm walking in darkness. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I am. Life is not leading anywhere good. What I need to say to you is, the point of this is not, I need to try harder to be good, because that doesn't work. The point is, you need to go to that place and kneel at that cross where they lifted up the Son of Man and say, I need this. I need the light that you bring. You're dying for my sins. I need that because I can't do it myself. And once you do that, once you come to the cross of Jesus and walk in the light for the first time, you will know the truth and the truth will have set you free. 